Almighty Father, we come before you at this special time, the day of your creation, as we memorialize the rest that you took on the seventh day. We're so grateful that we could come before you. It's a time we can relax from our the daily grind to give up the ways of the world for a day and to focus on you. We thank you for the opportunity to study your word. We pray that what's presented here would be enlightening to all and that would help encourage them and, and also strengthen their faith. We pray also for those who have a special need this day that you would be their Yahweh Rapha and that you would help them, you would heal them or you would give them the guidance they need, whatever their issue might be. And we thank you for the visitors who have come, some from a long way, and we pray that you will bless them the rest of this day as we come before you to learn of your word. In Yahshua's name we pray. Hallelujah. You may be seated. Well, it's been uh, quite a quite a winter. There we go. Uh, finally, it seems like we got some. Hey, I saw the sun this morning. You know, it's only been three months, but uh, it's great. I think it gives us the encouragement to look forward to warmer weather, and we're so grateful for that. <clears throat> Suppose of all the 6,500 languages and and uh, dialects in this world, suppose they started out as one language. And suppose the whole world will one day go back to speaking that very language from which all other languages come. Well, they did, and it will. A note in Genesis 11.1 says the whole earth was of one language and one speech. So everything was tied to this one language at the beginning of creation. One of the most eye-opening prophecies is Zephaniah 3.9. It speaks of a future time when this world will return to the time before the Tower of Babel, when everything, everyone on earth spoke one language. For then will I turn to the people a pure language that they may call upon the name of Yahweh to serve him with one consent. So there's the prophecy. Well, if you look at uh, the Hebrew words behind this prophecy, the word turn is, is hafak, and it means a, it's a principal meaning to turn or return. Turn back to return. Restore speech of a pure kind says Brown Driver Briggs. And more accurately, Yahweh says he will return the people to a pure language. You know, we have trouble, most of us, with our own language, you know, getting the verbs right with the subjects and so forth. You see it more and more on social media where misspelled words and wrong usage is all over the place, bad grammar, <clears throat> and it can be a problem. Uh, but... When you have a pure language, maybe it won't be such a problem. Because English is a mixed-up language, let's admit it. It's, it's just a cacophony of everything. It's just hard, and the foreigners have such a hard time learning it. But uh, with this language, the prophecy says that they will be calling on Yahweh's name. Now, there's a clue. There's a clue about that language. 
Back in Genesis 11, as everyone was speaking the same language, here comes Nimrod building an edifice to himself. Yahweh was infuriated. What did he do? He changed the language they were speaking into who knows how many other tongues. He confounded, the Bible says, the language of all the builders, very effectively stopping the work. You know, if you can't communicate, you can't cooperate. You know, Yahweh, in that, removed the link that united man to him in a very special way. We'll talk about that a little, little more later. Yahweh removed that special link, that language, and it's the very language by which he transmitted his name. I'm always in awe of how Yahweh comes up with novel ideas to fix things. You ever notice that? Who would have thought? How are you going to stop these people? He could just send an angel and knock down the tower, and of course they would just rebuild it, you know. But he, uh, he confounded their language. Who would have thought of that? You know, here's Israel in a pincher maneuver by the Egyptian army with the, with the army at their back in the Dead Sea, the Reed Sea, in front of them. What are they going to do? How are you going to, what's going to happen? They're all going to be slaughtered. Yahweh just splits the water and they will go across. Who would have thunk it? You know, the variety of languages in our world are the direct outcome of rejecting Yahweh. Think about it. Going back to speaking one language demonstrates a return to him, to the very first language that he gave mankind. All other languages, think about it, are man-centered because they were given to man to to confuse the work of the tower. So we don't find them as pure as the language Yahweh speaks. We find a direct link in the prophet of Isaiah 19.18. It says, In that day shall five cities in the land of Egypt speak the language of Canaan. Now, what's the language of Canaan? What is that? He wrote in this in the 8th century BCE. The language of Canaan that time was Hebrew because Israel, a lot of... uh, Uh, the people that were in Canaan were removed and Israel took their place. Israel at that time was, in the 8th century, was speaking Hebrew 400 years earlier. So the majority population was speaking Hebrew in the land of Canaan. The Bible says we're going to go back to that language because only a Ben-Hebrew. The interpreter's one-volume commentary on the Bible says we are told of five cities in Egypt where Hebrew is spoken. The NIV Study Bible verifies that, that that language was Hebrew, noting that after 586 BCE, when Jerusalem was destroyed, many of those Jews in Jerusalem fled to that area of Egypt to escape the enemy. So, the Jerusalem Bible says, that day in the land of Egypt, there will be five towns speaking five towns speaking the language of Canaan and swearing oaths in the name of Yahweh, Yahweh Sabaoth, 
Swearing oath in Yahweh's name is no problem if you're speaking his language, so to speak. And that's what he says is going to happen. Interpreters, one volume commentary on the Bible says the nations will learn Hebrew in order to serve Yahweh. Encyclopedia Britannica, the old Britannica. We got it downstairs. You want to look it up? Notes on Isaiah 19.18. The language of the Canaanites may perhaps be best described as an archaic form of Hebrew, standing in much the same relationship to the Hebrew of the Old Testament as does the language of Chaucer to modern English. In a work written in 1580 called The Discovery of the Dangerous Rock of the Romish Church, Dr. William Fulke at Cambridge University speaks of, quote, the Hebrew tongue, the first tongue of the world, and for the excellency thereof, called the holy tongue. It's even way back then. 500 years ago, they understood this. Another professor at Cambridge, Dr. William Whitaker, wrote in 1588 in the Disputation on Holy Scripture, quote, the Hebrew is the most ancient of all languages and was that which alone prevailed in the world before the deluge, the flood, and the erection of the Tower of Babel. For it was this which Adam used and all men before the flood as is manifest from the scriptures as the fathers testify, end quote. Here's a couple scholars. No, they got it. In 1657, Brian Walton, English bishop of, the Chester, of Chester, prefaced a great length in his polyglot Bible, the divine origin of Hebrew and the derivation from it of all other forms of speech. Acts 3.21 says, Yahshua will return until something is fulfilled. Something has to be fulfilled before he comes back. Whom the heaven must receive until the time of restitution of all things which Elohim has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets since the world began. We call ourselves a restoration ministry. We're trying to get back to those truths that have been lost for 2,000 years. And, obviously, we get a lot of blowback because it's, it's not, not common for people to, to look back and see that their traditions are way off base, that the church has made all sorts of changes. And so we're trying to get back Try to get back to that true faith that was once delivered to the saints. Do our best anyway. If all things will be restored, which speaks volumes for the importance of the Old Testament, then consistent with that will be a return to the language spoken before man went kittywampus. Would Yahweh speak in pure language to our first parents? Obviously not. It would be the only language to fit the definition of pure having originated with Yahweh himself, kept here by the chosen family of Shem. Notice the reason for the pure language. So they can call on the name Yahweh with one consent. In other words, with everyone like-minded as to the proper name. Now there's Heinz 57 out there about Yahweh's name. You see all sorts of varieties. Some are because of Ashkenazi influence up in Germany. Uh, some simply because uh, languages change over the years. And modern Hebrew 
is not the same as ancient Hebrew. There's a lot of differences there. So uh, there's a lot of different reasons that there's a lot of different ideas on the name. And part of it is because the Jews and the world basically stopped using it. The Jews decided it was too holy. They weren't going to use the name of Yahweh. In fact, when we were in Israel, we uh, remember my dad asked the, uh, the tour guide, now, uh, tell me something, is his name Yahweh? And she said, you said it. But she wouldn't say it. Too holy. And so they know it. They knew it. And it's a shame because Yahweh, all over his word, talks about proclaiming his name, honoring his name, sing to his name, worship in his name. And yet, what do they call him? Hashem, the name. How would you like to be called the guy or the woman and not your name? You know, man can pollute anything, but Yahweh's name is pure. And it's the name by which we find salvation. There's only one name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So uh, his name is, is key to our salvation. The Hebrew language is key to understanding Yahweh. Zechariah 8.20, all nations will come to Jerusalem and his name will be one. Not a different name because of different languages, but his name because of one language and not a different religion, but his name, which identifies his faith. Whenever a celestial being spoke to mankind, if you notice, it's always in the Hebrew tongue. Get your concordance out and look up Hebrew or Hebrew tongue in the New Testament. Not even in the Old Testament. You see, he always spoke, they always spoke in Hebrew. Not Greek, Latin, Arabic, or any of the others, but Hebrew. The name Hebrew derives from Eber, the great-grandson of Shem. His, his, name means, his name Shem means name. And Eber was a Hebrew and spoke Hebrew, as did the great Grandfather Shem. Children, of course, learn the language of their parents, right? I didn't teach my kids to speak Chinese. They spoke the language I speak. The earth's population came from three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. All the other lines of humanity were destroyed in the flood. So, who established his kingdom in Babel, in the land of Shinar, where he attempted to build the tower of Babel. Of course, that was Nimrod, the grandson of Ham. The families of Ham and Japheth settled in the plains and seashores area. Shem and his descendants, remember, they're all speaking Hebrew at this point, like Abraham, didn't live in the plains of Shinar. They were up in the mountain country. So they wouldn't have even gotten involved in this crazy tower of Babel that Nimrod was trying to established to center everything right there and he'd be the you know the all in all and Yahweh says uh uh-uh, uh that's not gonna happen. So they were not their language was not impacted by the tower, but all the other ones who spoke that language were. But they wouldn't have been down there building something totally sinful against Yahweh. So they wouldn't even have been down there and it says they weren't down there. We recall in Acts 26, 14, that Paul was knocked off his high horse on the road to Damascus, and it reads, and when we were all uh, 
fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking to me, saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, Shaul, Shaul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for you to kick against the pricks. What's that? That's a pointed stick used to prod animals. You know, you give them a little, little prick and they'll, they'll go. But if you kick against it, look out. You're going to feel the pain. And this is what Paul was doing. He was defying Yahweh. And Yahweh had to knock him down. Paul inquired, who are you, master? And he said, I am Yahshua, whom you persecute, Acts 26, 15. This was the resurrected Savior, and he was what? Speaking Hebrew. Speaking Hebrew. If Paul were the founder of the Christian Greek faith, and if the Greek language had become his language of choice, his language that he preferred to speak, then why was the Yahshua speaking to him in Hebrew? You know, that's the problem with, with uh, modern, a lot of modern uh, scholarship. They want to say that, well, no, it was all Greek. It was all Greek, and that ties in with the Greek flavor of the New Testament they're trying to make it, you know. So uh, we believe that the New Testament was originally written in Hebrew, because these were Hebrews writing it, number one, that's the big one, and the fact that the New Testament has all sorts of Hebrew idioms in there that wouldn't be in there if it was first written in Greek. Why would they stick a Hebrew idiom in there? And there's a lot of other reasons, too, grammatically, too, like the uh, wall consecutive. You look in, in Matthew, it says, and he did this, and he did that, and he did that. And is Hebrew. You don't find that in Greek. Anyway, there's lots of other, it's fascinating study if you ever want to do it, but uh, if it's in Hebrew, but only the Greeks survived through a translation, that's one thing. But to say it's written in Greek uh, doesn't make a, a lick of sense. Paul's personal language was Hebrew, and he was being told in the Hebrew tongue, why are you persecuting me? Even linguists demonstrated that Hebrew is the mother tongue of all language. They call it Phoenician, but Phoenician is practically Hebrew, and I think Phoenician really is a, a, a takeoff of Hebrew because they call it Phoenician because they don't like the Semitic overtones. That's my idea. That's what the scholarship will say. But it's actually ancient Hebrew called Proto-Canaanite, in fact, the Encyclopedia Britannica says Phoenician and Hebrew are very close cognates, very close to each other, like one's a, just like a slight dialect of the other. But if the Hebrew was the original language, then, yeah, it, Hebrew's older, you know. Noah Webster, from whom we get Webster's famous dictionary, traced numerous English words back to the Hebrew language. This is a fascinating bit of information. His etymologies were full of English words traced to what he called Shemitic sources, Semite, Semite Hebrew sources. Webster was America's greatest lexicographer who, believe it or not, mastered 26 languages. Can you imagine that? What did they say? The first lady can speak five languages, something like that? 26 languages. I'm having a hard time with this one. But you know, some people just have a mind that kind of soaks all that up. It's, they're just, that's just uh, how they work. Um, like some people like math, and that's not how I work. But it works for them, and gladly it does, you know. 
Isaac Moseson, author of the book, The Word, wrote, there are hundreds of English words which have almost the exact same structure as similar meaning Hebrew words. For instance, I, E-Y-E, is like ayin in the, in the Hebrew. Twin, toem in Hebrew. Tour, T-O-U-R, like T-O-O-R in Hebrew. Fruit, ferot in Hebrew. Evil, avel in Hebrew. Cry, kriya. Lick, lickik. I mean, this goes on and on. Peace, pasis. Scale, shakel, earth, eretz, wine, iron. You can see where English can come from these Hebrew words. The inflection is a little different, but hey, you can kind of figure it out. Direction, Derek, behemoth, behemoth. We use that word. That's that's a Hebrew word. Job forty fifteen means a beast. They say it could be a hippopotamus. The Bible talks about a beast like the behemoth. Well, it's easy to assume such Hebrew words were inspired by modern English. They can't be. All these Hebrew words are found in the Bible. You know, 2,500 years old. Can't be English isn't that old. Far older than English. The belief that Hebrew is the mother of all languages is called Nostratic school. Of thought. It's also known as Edenics. Look it up sometime if you want to study it out, which is a belief that modern day English is but a derivative of biblical Hebrew. In so many words, you can kind of figure out. Kind of like you know, I talked to Jose, and you know, a lot of the Spanish words, I can figure it out in English because they're so close. It's the way languages work. But we've lost touch with the significance of Hebrew in our world, not surprising when society is losing touch with the scriptures themselves. But it wasn't always that way. It wasn't always like that. The American colonists saw themselves as the new Israelites in a new promised land. And at the time of the American Revolution, interest in Hebrew was so widespread in this country that certain members of Congress and a Continental Congress proposed that they just give up English altogether and make America the land of Hebrew, Hebrew-speaking people. Gerdelson's Old Testament synonym says, quote, the Hebrew language, though poor in some respects, for instance in tenses, is rich in others, and probably no better language could have been selected for the purpose of preparing the way of Messiah. How about that? Yahweh had a plan. I've always wondered why he went there at that time he did. It was all planned. It's all planned historically to send Yasha when he did and where he did. He points out the variety of richness of the Hebrew language and gives examples such as seven Hebrew words rendered black in the King James. There are eight words translated axe, A-X-E, 12 words for beauty, 14 for dark, 18 are rendered fear, 22 for branch, 26 for cover, 42 for cut, 60 for break, and 66 for bring. How about that? Reading our English translation of the Bible, we're missing much of the nuance that you would have if you read it straight from Hebrew. 
Languages are tricky, and words can be slippery and sneaky. Like at the trial, the attorney says to the young lady, um, what gear were you in at the time of impact? She replied, Gucci sweats and Reeboks. You know, sometimes logic gets tangled in language, too, like the fellow who wondered, well, if most car accidents happen within five miles of your home, why doesn't everybody just move ten miles away? (laughs) You know, the the precise nuance of meaning is lost when 74 different words in Hebrew appear in English as the single word take. 74 different ways the Hebrew uses the word take. We have one. That's why we sometimes find misrepresentations in our English uh, versions for that problem. Like the translators who are not always careful to transmit fine distinctions. And that's why many new versions of scripture continue to be introduced. Everybody's trying to fine tune things because they see errors in the translations out there. We give the Bible student an opportunity to do independent research if they have a Restoration Study Bible. And by the way, we're almost out of them, but there's a few left. But in, the, in that Bible, we have, have you, as people who have one, notice that there's a superscript number next to most words in Old and New Testament, Hebrew and Greek. Then they can go back and to the uh, dictionary in the back, use that number for that word, and look it up in Strong's Concordance. And it is Strong's Concordance, not one we made up. So they can figure out what exactly, as far as Strong's does, that word means in Hebrew or Greek. And you can do a lot more uh, research that way. Well, if you notice, Strong's Dictionary is designed so you have Strong's, first you have Strong's number listed in the back. I couldn't put this on if I brought it on the screen. And then you have the associated word in bold in Hebrew or Greek that comes next in the listing in Hebrew or Greek letters. Then comes the pronunciation and etymology of the word, where it came from, and the root meaning and common usage of the word. Be careful. There's one thing you got to watch for. After the colon and the dash, these are the ways that the word has been used in the King James. Some people take that the different words after the colon and the dash and use that as definition for the word. That's not what it is. The definition of the word is what comes first. So you've got to watch that. Those are just ways that uh, that word appears in the King James, the various ways anything comes after the colon and the dash. Now here's a caveat. You know, many make the mistake of... Uh, of using that as a way the word is defined. And if you do that, you're going to be, you know, you may be close, but you're not going to be as accurate as if you use the very, the very definition of the word which is listed first. I was, a few months back, I was with a group, at a group, visiting a group, and the lady came up to me and says that uh, we got to talking, and she was really talking, and uh, said to me, uh, I was with, such and such group, and uh, I'm sorry to say I'm the cause of one of their false doctrines. She says that Satan is a woman, and she says, 
what I, what I was doing some study one time, and I was, she was using the way, I don't know how it happened, but she was using those words that are not definitions for that word, but, you know, how it's been used in the King James. And she was making a doctrine out of that. And she told the, the minister there about that. He says, wow, why don't you study that and do more research on it? So she kept going that direction, and that became a doctrine in that group. The minister apparently doesn't know how to study. So anyway, uh, there's, a, there's a reason you've got to watch that, because you can get way off. That can happen. And she says, I wish I'd never done that. But uh, she finally realized what was going on, too, when uh, she was just taking a blanket, you know, whatever Strong says about that word, and she would use one of them and get off way off track. Uh, anyway, go back to the word take as in the third commandment. Thou shalt not take the name of Yahweh, your Elohim, in vain. Take. Most think this means cursing at the golf course when you miss a putt. No, vain in the Hebrew is shawl, from a root show. And it has the basic meaning of deception or lying, which ultimately results in making something desolate and useless. Oh, that's what that means. The New Strong's expanded concordance says it figuratively reveals idolatry. Doesn't substituting his name with some other term, with some other either name or title, tend toward idolatry? Because you're not worshiping him. You're getting off track. A deception that causes his true name to become desolate and useless through replacement. Where has his name been for the last 2,000 years? Virtually hidden, generally unused until the 20th century, desolate, almost non-existent because of deceptive practices, the way I look at it, trying to hide his name and not use it. He said, when you don't do that, you're making his name desolate. You're ignoring him, basically, because his name is him, you know. Our name is us. We're very careful. We're very proud, very uh, defensive and protective of our name. Your name is George, and somebody says, hey, Pete. You're going to say, whoa, 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 that's not my name. Oh, we're very protective of our own no name. When it comes to Yahweh, oh, who cares? Uh, we use all these, they use all these arguments. Well, he knows who I mean. He has many names. One name is as good as another. I mean, we've heard these for years. None of them's in the Bible. None of them is, comes out of Scripture. None of them has any standing in Scripture. But this is how people reason, trying to get out of what they don't want to do. You know, it's nearly certain that Shem spoke the name uh, and the language as Adam because of the family descendants and the ancestors who lived in the same time and in the same homeland. You know, we're talking about a small area. You go to Israel, it's only 50 miles apart. You know, a cross at the longest. That isn't very big. Remember my son was talking when he went there. He was, he was uh, astounded. You, look, you get up high and look down on the Sea of Galilee, and you see all these cities. You think in the Bible, you're, you know, they're going, they're going from here to Kentucky to get to this one city. No, they're all right there. Right there you can see one, 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 all the way around the Sea of Galilee. So it's not a big country, and these people were living together as families. So they're going to be speaking the same language. The same general area. Shem is where the term 
Semite or Semitic derives. He was a patriarch of the Hebrews, and we know the language he spoke. Yahweh communicated with Adam and Eve when he created them, and they picked up on that language, of course, in Hebrew, which would logically be the original human language. How can we know? Because no other tongue but Hebrew is mentioned in Scripture as being spoken from on high. It is the earliest known biblical communication. It's the language of the oldest manuscripts and is the language specifically mentioned when divine instruction was given. Since the knowledge of Yahweh was given exclusively to the Hebrews in the Hebrew tongue, it stands to reason that those who know Hebrew know Yahweh possibly better than those who don't. Now, because of the wickedness of Babel, uh, Yahweh took away their Hebrew, but the conciseness and simplicity of the Hebrew language uh, and energy of the language can be seen by looking at the people who speak it, looking at the names of the individuals appearing in the early chapters of the Bible. Names, they're all Hebraic names. We still use them. Biblical names that derive from the Hebrew. People name their babies that still. All these different names that cover out of the Bible. Adam means red. Eve, Chava, means life or life spring. Look at the names of other Old Testament personalities, and you're going to see that they all have Hebrew meanings. And that's the other significance of Hebrew is that names, the Hebrew words, have meanings. They come from like mostly a three-letter root. You add letters onto it, and you create another, another word, but it's still related to that root word, so you have a general idea. It's kind of like German. You know, you get these big old long names. Germans just keep adding words or other names onto their names and, and words, and it just gets bigger and bigger. Well, Hebrew... Uh, does that in a smaller way, um, just adding to the root, three-letter root of the, uh, of the word. The lineage of uh, Shem is key. The Hebrew is the heavenly language. So uh, we find this confirmed in uh, the New Bible Dictionary. Hebrew belongs to the Western group of Semitic languages. The word Semitic is formed from the name Shem, Noah's, eldest son, page 710. Well, in his blessing on Shem, Noah did something interesting. He called Yahweh the Elohim of Shem and said Yahweh would dwell in the tents of Shem, Genesis 9, 26, 27. Notice, if you look at a, a, a chart, historical chart, I believe Randy has uh, worked on that. Uh, there's a couple of them in the next, in, do I dare say it, the upcoming, we're working on it, the next edition. Anyway, uh, we're not supposed to advertise it yet, but we've only got like 10 cases left, so it's, it's going to go fast, right, Debbie? She thinks. <laughs> then we're going to be without a Bible. Anyway, but uh, uh, anyway, the, uh, if you look at the chart in there, you know, the timeline of different people when they lived in the Old Testament, uh, it's, it's fascinating so Shem shared 98 years of his life with his great-grandfather, Methuselah. Methuselah is the great missing link in all of this, 969 years. 
He spanned a lot of lifetimes of other men with his long lifetime. Remember, the earth was at one language at this time. So Methuselah, what's he going to speak, Greek? No, he's going to speak Hebrew. He lived and shared a 243-year span with Adam. He'd be speaking the same language as Adam. Remember, this is one family. They all lived in one area. And another 600 years with Noah. Noah lived 350 years after the flood and died only two years before the birth of Abraham. Noah's son Shem lived uh, until Abraham was 150 years old and Isaac was 50 years of age. So here's a family of which the progenitor was Adam himself, the patriarch of the, the family, speaking the same language as the offspring spoke. You realize that Hebrew is the only ancient language in history to be brought back from the dead to become a modern language? Latin didn't do it. Latin's still dead. But Hebrew survived death to come back and will really come back when Yahweh establishes his kingdom when that language is going to be established around the universe. Pretty amazing. When Yahshua returns, he will return to the Mount of Olives to deliver a nation that is already speaking Hebrew. He will come again to his own, and this time they will receive him. The Hebrews were largely an energetic, robust, do, and at times turbulent people. They were outdoor folk. What I'm saying is their language reflects them. Farmers, fishermen, tradesmen who live the life to the full. For them, truth is a verb. Not so much to sit around and contemplate like some Greeks on Mars Hill, but an experience to be lived, a deed to be done. Even their prayers, you watch them at the wailing wall. And they're, they're getting into it. I'm afraid some of them might bump their heads. They get so close, but they really go at it. This is their energy. This is the type of people they are. The biblical writer often uses vocabulary, which is highly colorful, dynamic, action-packed. That's the Hebrew language. Greek is contemplative. Greek is thoughtful. Greek is it's academic. Hebrew is robust. It's out there in the world, and it's going at it. And that's what these people, that's how they lived. They were the same way. You study the the Hebrew Bible, it will show that uh, even Martin Luther called it a special energy in its vocabulary. He could see it. He discovered what many Hebrews of the 20th century have recently come to affirm. It is impossible to convey so much, so briefly, in any other language. Luther concluded... Quote, the Hebrew language is the best language of all, with the richest vocabulary. It has therefore been aptly said that the Hebrews drink from the spring, the Greeks from the stream that flows from the spring, and the Latins from a downstream pool. In other words, they're right there at the source. The Hebrews were mainly a doing and feeling people. Hebrew faith that Yahweh gave them, is an active religion. 
The religion we see in the Old Testament, Yahweh tells us to follow, is active. He says, keep a feast. Three times a year, you're to travel to keep a feast. You don't sit back in your backyard under your tent. You keep a feast as Israel did. They went to where Yahweh placed his name. It's an active faith. He says, keep the commandments. That's active. Do this, do that. They had to do all sorts of, thankfully, we don't have to do all the sacrifices they did but because Yahshua handled that. But uh, in all the other ways, we're to be involved in our faith. It's supposed to be something we think about every day and we do things in line with that, what we do. Like Yahweh commanded. He says, work six days and rest the seventh. Now we have people say, well, I keep every day holy. Well, I guess uh, you're a Greek then. You just sit around and think about it, but you don't do anything. No, he says you're supposed to work six days so you don't starve to death and then keep the seventh day. You can't keep every day holy and still live. You won't eat. You'll starve to death. That's just a silly argument. It's just another argument like he has many names or uh, he knows who I mean. It's just a dodge. That's all it is. You do things. You travel. You keep feasts. You work six days. Um, You do all these things because you honor the one you worship in the way he wants you to do it. And even the language expresses it. It's a doing language. It contrasts with those that have a passive faith. They do nothing but believe and have faith. That's all they do. The Hebrew has few abstract terms. Rather, it's, it's a language of the senses. The word originally expressed concrete or material things and movements or actions which, which uh, struck the senses. It's a very colorful language. You can, it, it, picture, it, 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 it uh, paints images, pictures in your mind when you read it. It's so colorful and so uh, expressive. That's what Hebrew is. Movements and actions would start the emotions. Only in metaphor could they be used to uh, denote abstract or metaphorical things. So the Hebrews that Yahweh gave that language to were living the language and active. Most worship today is passive. but That's not what Yahweh wants. He wants our whole being involved in him, in his worship, and his faith. The Torah, which simply is the Hebrew word for law, gives direction to Israel and us on how to relate to our creator, his people, and his world. For the Hebrews, personal or individual relationships has always been the more expressive of the heart. And we've talked about that so many times. It's in the heart. We're judged by our heart. We're judged by the inner person. That's what we're going to be judged by. They weren't half-hearted in anything. Their approach to life, Yahweh's ways, emphasized the release of emotion. Joy. Have joy at the feast. Have joy on the Sabbath. That's what we're supposed to do. Sabbath is a time of rejoicing. So are his feasts. People say, you know, I didn't know what that feast was going to be like, like Tabernacle. I didn't know. Boy, I came here. I just, they didn't want to leave. I want to leave. 
You're immersed eight days with Yahweh's people in a, in a spiritual understanding that you never had before. And they don't want to leave. And they're praising Yahweh in so many ways. It's just his spirit works and works among us. So anyway, uh, the Hebrews primarily thought of Yahweh in terms of personality and activity. When he says he's love, it's not Yahweh is love. It's our loving Elohim, active. The Semites of the Bible did not simply think, think truth. They experienced truth. To the Hebrews, the deed transcended the creed. Walking in the truth, John 4, and living the truth, 1 John 1, 16, were a high priority of, the, of his people. To the Hebrew mind, all of life is a unity, and human beings have an awareness of Yahweh in all that they do. Reflecting his strong Hebrew background, Paul writes, so whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it for the glory of Yahweh. Do it for his glory. And always with him in the forefront of your mind. The faith of Yahweh's people is active, or it needs to be. It's intended to be. Even before the flood, people such as Enoch and Noah walked with Yahweh. They expressed his faith. If a person knows Yahweh, he's in daily contact, thinking of Yahweh, praying constantly, always in close fellowship with him. Those who do, they love mercy and they walk humbly. That's what Yahweh wants us to be, too, to do that. We return to the fact that the essence of religion is relationship. It is doing, not bloviating, just thinking about Mars Hill. That's all they wanted to do up on Mars Hill. Paul walks by and says, oh, all they want to do is think of something, some new thing. You know, we still see that today in many, uh, in many ways. People like come up with new doctrines, like the one I mentioned. Something new, something I never heard before. People say, well, you know, I know all this. I've got it all under my belt now. I've studied this for 20, 30 years. Now what? then my answer is go out and share it. Give it to others. That's your job. You weren't given this for nothing, you know. You're given a talent. Go out and multiply it. Don't just stop and say, well, I know it all, and that's the end, and I can go home now. No. Now is the work comes. Now you're supposed to get out and share the truth. And that's what, uh, that's what we're obligated to do. So I hope we're all in that mind frame. We're all thinking of, of Yahweh and his worship. Even in our daily lives, as we go around this world who is getting farther and farther away from him, we got to do our part and try to say, you know what, there's more to this life than this, and uh, why don't you try it? You'll be pleased and happy you did. May Yahweh bless you.